Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Today's podcast looks at a fascinating piece of historical research, but I ought to warn you, it contains explicit sexual content. In recent decades, there have been some remarkable discoveries in the archives of the Southern Netherlands. Examining court records, today's guest has recovered the lives of women who were accused and sometimes charged with the crime of female sodomy. Punishment for such a crime was violent, and fatal. At first sight, the phrase female sodomy might strike us as unusual. The word sodomy derives from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, so it is commonly associated with a phallocentric idea of sexuality. But in the early modern southern Netherlands, that is Ghent, Ypres, Antwerp, Brussels, Louvain and Malins, sodomy could also relate to same-sex acts between women, as well as some other sexual crimes which we'll learn about today. And what does female sodomy have to do with female liberty? The answer is quite fascinating. Through his painstaking archival research, today's guest believes the brutal punishment of women for sodomy was a consequence of the high degree of liberty they enjoyed in the Southern Netherlands. The greater a woman's liberty, the greater the price she paid if she used it unwisely by the standards of the time. To learn more about women's lives in the early modern Low Countries, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jonas Rulens, postdoctoral researcher at Ghent University. His PhD on the perception and repression of sodomy in the early modern Southern Netherlands was awarded the Eric Derverger Prize by the Royal Flemish Academy of Belgium and is shortly to be published. He's also the co-author of Silenced Desires, A History of Homosexuality in Belgium. He's currently working on a book on queer art history in Belgium from the Middle Ages to the present day. Professor Rulens, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this absolutely fascinating piece of research. You've dived into the archives from around 1400 to the mid-16th century, and I suppose we ought to start by clarifying exactly what was meant at that time by these strange phrases, female sodomy or female sodomite? 
First things first, female sodomite is a term that is coined by recent scholars and it's not particularly used by bailiffs or the authorities at that point. Because what fascinated me is that they don't really make a distinction between male and female sodomites. They use the general term sodomy or buggery or the nefarious sin or whatever euphemism you had for not quite dealing with the term as such. But it's strange to see that sodomy as a very broad term is also applied to women, in fact. What do these people mean when they talk about sodomy? It's a very broad umbrella term, so to speak, which was used to talk about a whole range of sexual acts, deviant sexual acts, which were not aimed at procreation, was associated with masturbation, with child abuse, with bestiality, with anal sexual intercourse between men and women, but most and foremost with male homoerotic acts, and in certain instances also with female same-sex eroticism. Why is that peculiar or strange? Because in the 15th and 16th century, sexuality was perceived as a phallocentric thing to do. So in order to talk about proper sexual acts, you needed to have penetration. You needed to have a male participant who had a penis to penetrate a subject. And the whole idea that two women could engage in sexual acts with one another without interference of a man would have sounded very peculiar, very strange to most people in the late Middle Ages in the early modern period. And that was what struck me when I discovered those cases of female sodomy in those court records in the southern Netherlands. And given that some of what you describe involves same-sex relations between women, and thinking of Judith Bennett's famous decision to use the term lesbian-like when talking about same-sex sexual activities in the past, why might we want to avoid using the term lesbian? I chose to avoid it in my own research, even though I'm quite a fan of the article of Judith Benedict in which she described the use of lesbian as a term, because I do agree that if we are too scared of using contemporary words and see history as a sort of antiquarianism, we tend to write heteronormative history and we tend to not really ignore, but tend to look at it as something peculiar, something strange. Nevertheless, that being said, in my own research, I tend to avoid terms as lesbians or lesbian-like because the sources at my disposal are written solely from the perspective of the legal authorities and not really written from the perspective of the women which Bennett tries to uncover in history. And even if they are giving testimonials, etc., they are rewritten by civil clerks. And I think that the term lesbian in my own research would not do justice to those opinions, to those mentalities perceived by those legal authorities, which doesn't exclude the fact that some of these women I have encountered in those legal sources did not, I wouldn't say identify themselves, but weren't aware of the fact that they were exclusively attracted to women. It is my opinion that people, whether they were male or female in the past, have experienced some exclusive orientation towards people of the same gender, even though the words to describe that or our contemporary words we use nowadays were lacking. I do think that it's valuable to look at it in that perspective, but unfortunately, my sources do not allow it. I would jump very high in the air if I were to discover some letters or some diaries of 15th century women who were experiencing those desires. But unfortunately, when your life is literally at the stake, you're not very inclined to write about it or to express your feelings in a very deliberate or open way. So in my opinion, one would tend to avoid the term lesbian-like if you're working with legal sources, but it can be used in other research and other areas of this discipline, sure. Now, 
It's very interesting that you've used legal sources, because as I understand it from your work, female sodomy did not have a legal basis in the Southern Netherlands until 1532. So how do we explain prosecutions before this date? It's not just excluded to the Southern Netherlands. In fact, if you look at the European continent, there's hardly any legal basis to prosecute women who experienced homoerotic desires. That all starts with religious interest in homoerotic desires, because there are very few early Christian authors who explicitly address female homoeroticism in their writings. Paul is one. Some scholastic scholars in later centuries, like Albertus Magnus, etc., they very briefly describe female sexuality in their comments on sodomy in general. And also in the Low Countries, you have some 15th century sermons in which they are very briefly described, but the phenomenon is mostly or largely neglected by ecclesiastical writers, which is also reflected in secular law. If you look at medieval legislation, there are only a handful of medieval cities who have law codes describing female sodomy. The French town of Orléans is among them. Bamberg in the Holy Roman Empire has some imperial city code. But if you look at the continent and also England, for instance, the Buggery Act of 1533 by Henry VIII doesn't describe women at all, which has a lot to do with the whole idea that sex is phallocentric and that sexuality among women is far less serious. Also in the southern Netherlands, you don't have any city law codes or royal laws that formally forbid it. It's only until 1532, as you come to mention, that Charles V, the emperor, wants to make some sort of rationalization of all the different law codes. And he also wants to take a look at the laws in the southern Netherlands. And he imposes the Constitutio Criminalis Carolina, the imperial law code, in which also women were prosecuted if they had sex with one another. And wipe, mit wipe, that have sex, they are to be put at the stake. Then again, this imperial law code was never really actually implied in those cities in the southern low countries. It had a sort of influence on an informal level, but it never become a formal law. Zero was actually a legal vacuum. There wasn't really something to backbone that prosecution, but it happened nevertheless. What was at the disposal of many local city councils and aldermen was the fact that we had two humanist lawyers who wrote some sort of manuals for aldermen, because a lot of these people didn't have the legal training, didn't went to college and university, couldn't read Latin sources on law and legislation. So those two men wrote a sort of manual in Middle Dutch and Middle French, which was used by these local city councils to prosecute people. But even they don't really discuss female sodomites. So it's a bit of a mystery why the Southern Netherlands in particular were so keen on prosecuting women or why the willingness to prosecute female sodomy was such a priority at the period. It's really very unusual, isn't it? I mean, I haven't come across it in my reading anywhere else. It seems very surprising that there's such a focus on female sodomy in the Low Countries when there isn't elsewhere. Indeed it does. And it is quite astonishing, really, if you look at the figures of the actual prosecution of women. In my own research, between more or less the year 1400 and 1550, I discovered 25 women, which to the average reader may not seem that much. But if you compare those figures of those 25 women accused of female sodomy, compared to the rest of the European continent, it's astonishing. For the other countries and regions, we don't have a single case or only a handful of isolated cases. There are some in the Holy Roman Empire. There are some in Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. But it never gets this big as in the southern low countries. 
Even more so, the mortality rate of those women is quite frightening. If you have 25 women who were in fact accused, no less than 15 of them died at the stake and were in fact burned. And that's a mortality rate of over 60%. And if you compare that with other numbers, for instance, the Spanish Inquisition, which has become some huge thing in our public perception, well, we see that the mortality rate in some of those local courts was no more than 15%. And in some cases in Barcelona, for instance, only 3% of the people who were accused of sodomy were in fact executed. So the willingness to punish these people in the southern Netherlands is quite astonishing compared to the rest of Europe. We're going to need to talk about that in due course. It's also more than the mortality rate for witchcraft across Europe as a whole. So is it fair to say that sodomy ranked as one of the most serious of crimes for these authorities? Absolutely. Whether you look at religious rulers or authors or at legal scholars, they all rank it among the most high of crimes. It's really perceived as an unnatural crime, a crime that should not be mentioned and is way above and beyond other sexual crimes because it's considered an unnatural crime. It goes against any divine rule and it is really a mortal sin more than any other crime because when you look at how other sexual crimes are discussed, adultery, prostitution, whatever, it's also a religious sin. It's something that should be avoided at all costs, but authorities tended to look at prostitution, for instance, rather pragmatically. In cities like Bruges, which had one of the highest execution rates for sodomy, prostitution was tolerated. Prostitutes were fined once a year with the character of a tax rather than a real punishment. But sodomy was something quite different because when sodomy was concerned, no children could be conceived and that made it truly an abomination against God and its natural laws. Even more so because they didn't have the notion of a sexual orientation which you were born. Every person on earth could take the decision to commit right sexuality or deviant sexuality. And if you chose to engage in deviant sexuality, you endangered your entire community because of the biblical retaliation of God. When God witnessed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah engaging in unnatural acts, he decided to punish those cities with fire and brimstone and to erase them from the earth, which had implications for societies in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, because people at the time believed that if you were too tolerant towards sodomites and if you condoned that kind of behavior, if you didn't punish them, God would in your place. God would interfere and would strike once again with fire, with sickness, with plagues, with warfare and the like. And it's striking to hear or to read that not only priests and theologian writers say those kinds of things, but also those legal scholars. Joseph Damhorder writes in a very neutral way about all kinds of crimes in his book. When he describes murder or theft, which are also sins from a religious point of view, he describes them very worldly, very neutrally. He even puts nice explicit pictures in his book of people stabbing one another. But when he discusses sodomy, all of a sudden it's described in a religious discourse. It becomes a sin. And the picture to describe sodomy is not two men or two women engaging in sexual acts, but God destroying Sodom. So that is one of the reasons why sodomy is considered such a dangerous crime, because you endanger your entire community. You have the responsibility towards your family, your friends, to your entire city to engage in natural sex, to avoid the divine retaliation, the wrath of God, so to speak. Is it because of that shading between sin and crime that women who were found guilty of this were burnt at the stake? 
I do think so. And I think so, especially because in the southern Netherlands, women had a very important position in society and had a lot of liberties in society, which sounds paradoxical. But if you have those liberties and if you can engage in society that much, if you go against that society, you are held accountable far more than in other regions. And I think that is one of the main explanations for the willingness, the keenness of those local authorities to punish women for their deviant sexual acts. The fact that sin is at stake and sins need to be punished to preserve the reputation of the city, because especially in the southern low countries, also in Italy, which is very interesting because Italy is also a hotbed for sodomy prosecutions at the time. But in the 15th and 16th century, civic reputations are very often described in religious terms. You see these public processions. Cities, civic communities in the southern Netherlands are sanctified, so to speak, through a religious discourse. And if you, as an individual, don't uphold that civic agreement, you are punished much in the same way as God punished those deviant sodomites in biblical terms. In that respect, the actual punishment, the stake, burning someone to death, is also very symbolical. It's a sort of reenactment of that biblical punishment in the 15th century. And it's unusually harsh because even people who are burned at the stake for a number of things are garroted first as opposed to having to actually die by flames. It does in itself indicate awfulness with which the crime is perceived. But can you say a little bit more about that idea about the greater liberty of the southern Netherlands? What did that look like? If you look at all those individual aspects, you could say that happens in a number of other countries as well, but it's the total sum of liberties enjoyed by a lot of women in southern low countries that is exceptional. And it already happens or starts at birth, so to speak, because women in the southern low countries have equal inheritance rights. So if your parents die, the inheritance not necessarily goes to your brothers or to your eldest brother. Daughters inherit a large sum, an equal sum as well, which allows a lot of women to engage in a very liberal way of living. They can independently start their own trading business. They don't need any agreement by their husband. In many cities and in many periods, they can control certain aspects of the civic economy, mainly dealing with food, etc. They are very literate. That is something that is very striking for foreign visitors to the Southern Low Country. The fact that all these women who are working in the trade sector can read and write and do accounts, etc. We have a lot of Italians writing surprised letters to home to talk about the way that women are very literate and are also very keen on discussing and debating publicly and very often don't hesitate to put their husband in their place, so to speak. So you have a lot of literature and jokes and humor of the battle for the pants in the southern low countries, the question on who's on top in the household, so to speak, and also female writers. There's one instance on our banks in 16th century Antwerp who even writes poetry to warn women that they should never get married because they're far more free and liberal when they're on their own. So it's economically, culturally, even politically, you have a lot of, in the Middle Ages, countesses and in the 16th century, female representatives who are rulers in their own right. So in every layer of society, women who can go their own way, religiously also you have the Beguines, a female religious movement not held accountable by a local priest or a bishop. So the total sum of all these liberties is quite astonishing, also for foreigners and contemporaries across Europe, which is surprising, given the fact that female sodomy is prosecuted so harshly in this specific region. But in my opinion, it's intertwined and it's interconnected. 
because of the fact that these women were so visible in society, because they participated in society, they also were more vulnerable than, for instance, women in Southern Europe who were withdrawn from the public sphere and who lived in the house of their parents and who moved to the house of their husbands whenever they married on quite a young age. In the Southern Low Countries, women tended to marry on a later age and tended to be economically more independent, visible, but of course, also more vulnerable if you engaged in homoerotic acts. You were perhaps more in danger of getting noticed or being held accountable for your own acts, which resulted in those high prosecution rates. So I suppose because there's a greater degree of elasticity towards their patriarchal roles or roles within patriarchy in some places, it's tighter when it comes to matters of behaving as they should sexually. Exactly that. Which is also striking to see that if women who engage in female sodomy, for instance, in intercourse during their marriage, they are not prosecuted because it is their husband who took initiative to engage in sodomy. And it's the wives merely submitted to it and they acted according to the rules of the household in which the husband is dominant. And it's considered normal for women to submit into that female sodomy if that husband wants it. The husband is punished and those wives are let off scot-free. And that contrast is quite significant to me, that women who defy the rules of their marriage, who leave their husbands to engage in sexual activities with other women, are quite brutally punished, publicly punished. Whereas wives who submit to the will of their husband are let off scot-free and it's considered something according to the hierarchy of marriage. So it's something to do with crossing boundaries. And those women who engage in female sodomy cross boundaries, defy those rules, those norms in society. On Gone Medieval, History Hits Medieval Podcast, we're here to spoil you with the big topics. Possibly one of the most important Anglo-Saxon discoveries since Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde. And discover people you might never have heard of. Philip Augustus, genuinely, he was a genius. We explore cutting-edge research. I want to focus on the archaeology. It's a whole body of information and knowledge in its own right. And the big questions. There is discussion about whether women wore knickers. From everyday life to dynasty-shattering events. The key to conquest was cavalry and the short, extremely powerful bow the Mongols had. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. about what a woman, one of these 25 women, might have experienced, beginning with the accusation. How did such women come to the attention of the authorities? Were they denounced? Was it gossip? Were people hunting them out? It's a combination of all of the above indeed, because first and foremost, if you read those sources and testimonials, it is quite striking to read where and how and at what time those sexual activities occurred, because privacy is, of course, a very modern concept. And in our views, it's quite astonishing or striking where those women found each other and had sexual intercourse, for instance, in hospitals and fields and taverns and bathhouses and whatever. So in a number of cases, they were caught red-handed in the midst of the acts, which is not that surprising, given the locations I just mentioned. But in a lot of other cases, they were denounced. They were handed over to courts by their locals, by their bystanders, friends, families, economic rivals, and whatever. And that is very astonishing indeed, because that nuances the whole idea that sodomy prosecution is something that happens top down from the authorities that want to control their subjects. In my opinion, or in my research, I discovered that it's quite the opposite, that it's the urban community that is often asking for a more strict prosecution policy. And a number of people are handed over to courts by locals. And strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, those things can take quite a while. We see some cases in which people are denounced years after the act. And that is interesting because that links that female sodomy with another female crime of witchcraft in which you see the same dynamics, the same pattern in which people are gossiping or spreading rumors about deviant sexuality for years on end. And then all of a sudden, for reasons not always that very clear, it becomes necessary to denounce those people to the authorities. So you see the whole pattern of rumors of gossip being used in this particular field as well, and the examples of female deviant sexuality. Although I suppose one difference would be that with the witchcraft cases, over that period of time, as a reputation has built up, there will be multiple instances. And mm -hmm. then there tends to be some sort of triggering instant. Whereas, if I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that this could be a single instant or some behaviour that relates back to a period in the past. And therefore, the trigger becomes even less clear. Yeah. In some cases, we see that it happened on multiple occasions and that people had sex on numerous places and with numerous women, etc., etc. But in some occasions, it can be just what we would call a one-night stand. What I have witnessed in my research is that the need or the willingness to prosecute sodomy, whether it's female or male sodomy, 
is at a peak in the second half of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century. And that is a period in which in a number of cities like Bruges, for instance, the economy isn't thriving and a range of merchants and tradesmen are moving towards another city. Bruges is losing its monopoly as a trading hub and people are wondering why that's happening and how we should deal with it. And we see that there's a sort of a moral economy and prostitution is being prosecuted far more often. Adultery is being prosecuted more often at that particular point, female sodomy as well. So that's perhaps one of the explanations of why people become more stringent in their views on sexual taboos. I'm not saying it's the only one, but it's one way of making sense of why it all of a sudden becomes so important for locals and authorities to deal with those acts. Yes, so there's a sense in which it is the fear of God's wrath mm. that is causing people to crack down on things that are seen as immoral because then that might produce better circumstances in terms of trade and the economy for everyone else. But given the sense that these denunciations are coming from society, that people are gossiping or reporting others and that the authorities are responding to that, how keen were they then to jump on that accusation and to take a woman to trial and to investigate? And exactly how did they do that? What were their methods? Well, it comes to my mind that those authorities were rather keen on taking those matters serious. And there are a number of women who were released and who weren't punished indeed. It's not that a single accusation of someone local was enough to justify an execution. There was a legal procedure. And women and men accused of sodomy were indeed questioned, in many occasions, under torture. But if they confessed under torture, they needed to repeat those accusations outside of the torture room. So there was some kind of legal procedure. What I've found out is that social capital was of extreme importance for people to be considered innocent or not guilty, because we see that a number of people pay the fine or paid the bailiff to avoid the trial so they could avoid prosecution. Clergymen were, of course, protected from being treated by urban law courts. They had their own religious courts. And if those were transferred to those religious courts, we see that they received a mere fine or they went to prison for a few days or simply transferred to another parish in much the same way as the Roman Catholic Church has dealt with priests who engaged in sexual acts for a number of centuries. On the other hand, a number of people who didn't have those privileges, foreigners, immigrants, were far more vulnerable of being falsely accused in the first place, but also of being prosecuted because it was one way of demonstrating how your own environment, your own community was pure, was free from those evils. And if it was roaming across your town or your city, it was because of foreigners. So there are people who are far more vulnerable and way more dangerous of getting accused of that. Women tend to perhaps fit in that picture as well, because the common idea is that women have a cold and wet nature and are insatiable and far more curious. And when they hear about these deviant sexual acts, tend to try them at home. So that were ideas that were spread across Europe, not just in the southern low countries. So that is perhaps an answer to those dynamics or procedures, not just those common people who are afraid or, or asking for a stricter appliance of the law, whenever that kind of cases appear in front of these local aldermen, they are taking it quite serious. There is an intriguing case that's from the 17th century. It's quite intriguing because in 1618, there are two women, Mike and Magdalene, who are working in a farm near Bruges and who are having a sexual relationship with one another. 
And the community is gossiping about it, is talking about it. And when these women are finally arrested, they come up with a whole range of explanations for this behavior. Because these people clearly are not familiar with female sexual acts. And so they come up with a whole range of explanations such as, I don't think that one woman is actually a woman. I think she's a man in disguise. There's someone who's claiming that she's a hermaphrodite. Someone claims that she is the devil in person or someone who has entered into a pact with the demon. And at first, the aldermen of Bruges are cynical and skeptical and they don't really repeat those accusations once they interrogate those women. You see that trial evolving and all of a sudden the aldermen, they do start to ask those questions. We heard that you poisoned some apples. They just spread some deviant books or books with witchcraft filled with them. And almost as if these aldermen start to doubt what is really happening here. Are we dealing with witches or not? And in the end, it's really as if they don't really know how to deal with these women because they merely banished them as if someone else's problem now, which is also very intriguing because a century before in Bruges, those women would definitely be burnt at the stake. So that particular sexual knowledge of what is sodomy and how broad is our definition of sodomy also evolves throughout that late medieval and early modern period. And that case is really fascinating to illustrate that whole idea that in a particular city, Bruges, that was one of the most active cities across Europe in persecuting sodomites. A century later, those very aldermen whose forefathers executed those people are not quite sure how to treat them or to deal with those cases. So that's fascinating how that knowledge is not static, evolves and can get lost as well. I understand that as part of many trials, women were examined to see if they had penetrative genitalia. And you mentioned women being considered to be possibly hermaphrodite. Were women accused of being that after the physical examination? Yes, there were in a number of cases, and particularly in the 16th century, because we see an evolution in the way in which people look at the human body and scholars in particular, because it's a period or an era in which a lot of anatomical studies are taking place in the Southern Low Countries as well. We have Andreas Vesalius, a famous anatomist. And this is a period in which the clitoris is rediscovered, so to speak. Apparently, people were lost it for some, a couple of centuries, I don't know. But <laughs> the, the scholars now were convinced that this was an actual aspect of female anatomy. But they were afraid of it because they were speculating about whether women were capable of using it for penetration or not. And especially in far-off countries, it was believed that women, extremely large clitorises that they used for penetration. We have sources from the ambassador at the Ottoman court, the ambassador for Charles V, who writes about how he visited female bathhouses and witnessed how these Turkish women penetrated one another. So there was this newly founded fear for women who took the matter into their own hands and took up the male role of sexual penetration. And it's very intriguing to see that in those court records, women who took initiative to engage in sexual acts were punished more severely than women who merely submitted to those sexual acts. Women who took the first step were considered tribates, women with enlarged clitorises who were physically deformed and crossed boundaries in a multiple ways. A number of those other women who were the passive partner, who were penetrated in the mindset from those late medieval and early modern witnesses, were considered naive victims in some way. And a number of those women even testified that they didn't really know that they were having sex with another woman. They thought it was a man. And it seems likely that they just adopted that discourse to 
receive a lighter punishment and that they applied that discourse to their own benefit, their own advantage. So you mentioned earlier that 10 out of those 25 women were not burnt. Was there a correlation between those who were not found guilty or at least not executed and playing that apparently passive role? Yes, indeed. We see that in a number of cases, it's actually legitimated why those women were receiving a lighter punishment, even though lighter punishment is quite debatable because these women were banned for life or they were flogged and scourged until they bled. And in some cases, their hair was ritually burnt off. So it's not a treatment you want to undergo, even though you were considered less guilty or innocent. There are some cases in which it's explicified that this particular woman was taking initiative. For instance, there is in Bruges a case in the second half of the 15th century, Martine, she's called, and she clearly took initiative. And she was considered the deviant woman who seduced other girls and women across the town. And those other women were, in some instances, considered victims. They were more young than her, and so they were innocent, perhaps naive. They were tricked into having that kind of intercourse, and so they received a lighter punishment. And another case in Ghent, a mother and a daughter who abuse their housemates, who have sex with her, and she is considered... I wouldn't say a victim because she also receives a punishment, but they do take into account that there's some power hierarchy between the lady of the house and the housemate. And so the housemate does receive a lighter punishment. And there are a number of instances in which that line of thinking coming up, which is astonishing and surprisingly because that is exactly the way in which male sodomy trials are conducted too. People are looking for who is the one who took the initiative, Who can be considered a victim? Did it occur against your will or not? Or are you solely the passive partner who didn't take initiative, who was penetrated? And that is astonishing that these city councils in the Southern Netherlands think in the same line. So they don't really distinguish between male and female sodomy, tend to use those same very harsh punishments. Because if we zoom out and we look at other regions in Europe, Female sodomites who do get punished or who do get executed tend to receive a typical female punishment, which is being drowned alive or being buried alive. That is a sort of punishment that's never used in the southern low countries. They use that same type of punishment, death at the stake, for either male sodomites and female sodomites. And that symbolical cleansing of society, a very public way also of treating it, is atypical and says something about the broad definition of sodomy in the southern low countries. Now, I know in your work, you don't make any claims about the systematic prosecution of women for sexual crimes because you found the records to be opaque mm -hmm. and that it's difficult to be sure about the extent of the prosecution. Can you explain that a little bit, this opacity? It's very striking indeed and very frustrating for a scholar who wants to do research on this particular topic. But what I use as sources are bailiff accounts. And the bailiff is the sort of sheriff, so to speak, who represents the prince on an urban level. But these bailiffs are notoriously corrupt and to avoid that they find too much people and keep the money themselves, they are supposed to submit accounts on a yearly basis. But these are financial sources. It deals with executed this and this person and it costed me that much for the hangman and for a pile of wood, etc. They aren't really keen on describing in a very elaborate way what occurred particularly. And... 
frustratingly enough, for a number of crimes they do, they describe pages and pages or folios and folios on end, what type of goods were stolen and etc. So you read them and finally you find the sodomy case and you have the reflex to say Eureka and jump in the air and then only you realize that you're dealing with someone who was executed for their sexual desires. But still, they describe it very brief, very cryptical even. It's on this date, we burned this person for sodomy, etc. And it's by combining a number of sources from the urban level that you can find out who was this person, what age this person have, was this a one-time offender of their, did it happen on a number of occasions, what type of sodomy was committed, because I said that sodomy could range from masturbation to bestiality. So it's very difficult to know what exactly occurred. So you need to look at the punishment to figure out how this person was the active partner or the one who took initiative. So there is a lot of blankness in those sources, which deals with that taboo, I guess. It remains something that should not be discussed in a broad or in much detail. And in religious sources, you even find these kind of disclaimers or trigger warnings, as we would say nowadays. Dear reader, I'm very sorry. I know I shouldn't discuss this, but I'm going to do it anyway, but I'll be brief. Don't transmit this information to someone else, etc. Which is funny in a way that they have these type of rules of being very brief about it, discussing it in the most discreet way possible. But they do choose a very public way of punishing it. They do make a huge ceremony out of it. And these people, whether they're male or female, are often burned group executions in which a number of people are executed at the same time on a public square or near the city gate with a huge public watching. And that's a paradox. And in my opinion, it is some way of showing that this is a place of law and order. If you take a city gate, it's a very clear message to anyone who enters the city. If you choose a public square, which is symbolical for civic power, it says something about the priorities of that city council at a particular time. But it's a paradox that you have these sources who are very brief, very cryptical about a particular crime. And then you have the punishment out and about and very open about it and doesn't try to conceal what happened in comparison to other parts in Europe where those women were often buried in the cover of darkness and where trial documents actually say that we should be very brief with this because other women will try to copy paste these kind of practices. So that's something that is at play as well, the fear of women doing this at home. And on the other hand, in the Southern Low Countries, that doesn't seem to play that much because they make it a public event, really. I was really struck by what you said earlier about the Eureka moment in the archives, because I was thinking about the work that I've done, which is on the south of France. And there are lots of cases there involving sexual assault and rape by men of women, many of them employers with maidservants. And I was thinking, there's no evidence there because the authorities aren't interested. There's no evidence of any exploitative relationships by older women on younger women. Mm. On the other hand, it had there been, I'd also find evidence of same-sex consensual desire that would have been punished. So it's better that I don't have the evidence. It's a very contradictory position to be in as a scholar working on these things. I think it's very important to know and to realize that you're not actually looking at the past and the reality, how it actually happened or occurred, but as legally constructed truth, which is also a very intriguing way of looking at it. And there was one particular case with a woman involved, in fact, that was identity crisis as a historian or something like that. It was a woman in 16th century county of Hainaut who accused her husband of penetrating her actually anally. 
and she felt abused and she accused her husband of committing sodomy. The husband is interrogated under torture and he admits that he had engaged in sodomy with his wife. So the hangman is called and an execution is due. Luckily for that man, the hangman is busy somewhere else. He's in a nearby town executing someone, so he's not available at the time, which buys him some time. His parents and some other neighbors come to file complaints as well. They say this testimony of his wife and his mother-in-law, who is also involved, is not trustworthy at all because they have tried to kill him on a number of occasions previously. So they merely come up with this story. The aldermen scratch their heads and they call again the wife and the mother-in-law and they are questioned under torture. And it appeared that this woman had a secret affair. She had an affair with another man and she had abused her own body. She had abused herself anally with a broomstick to make it believable, which is surprisingly and astonishingly, but it shows that people knew about sodomy and tried to use it in their own advantage. She had figured out that if I file a complaint against my husband, I'll be free and I can remarry again. It turned out quite differently. She and her mother-in-law were executed because she accused her husband. That's a very fascinating case for a number of reasons, but it was also striking for me as a historian because if that hangman would have been available in a short period of time, that man would have been executed and he would have ended up in my database as a sodomite, so to speak. False accusations are very interesting, but also tend to make you a bit humble as a historian because you realize you have these legal sources and you have to deal with them, but you're not necessarily looking through a mirror to the past as it actually occurred. But it's quite intriguing because that's not the only occasion of false accusations that I found in the records. There are a number of women who try to accuse their husband of sodomy in order to get rid of him, to see him burn at stake and to start a new life. And so people use those rumors and use those gossips to their own advantage, which is fascinating that the crime that should not be mentioned was actually buzzing all around town. That's absolutely fascinating. And you're so right about the impression that history leaves on the record not necessarily being, or in any way being, really accurate representation of the past. What does everything we've heard today suggest about sexual boundaries in the early modern southern low countries in this period of time? I think if you look at it for a more abstract level, not just on the sodomy level per se, it says something about the liberties that were present in the southern low countries and perhaps the low countries in more general, because it was a region known for prostitution. Some scholars have even called it a prostitution culture. In recent studies, it was called an export product because wives of Flanders were known in brothels all across Europe. So it is a society in which a lot is possible, a lot is condoned, but Within the rather pragmatic approach towards sexuality, there are some taboos and some boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. And sodomy is definitely one of those. And I think it's perhaps because of those sexual liberties in other domains that sodomy is dealt with so seriously, so stringently. I tend to look at sodomy as merely one aspect of a broader cultural history. It says something about taboos. It shows something about the idea of innocence, of guilt. It shows something about legal authorities versus the urban community and how one approaches this and appropriates law and justice for their own benefit or to deal with one's own fear and use it to comprehend acts or facts you're not really at ease with. It also says something about societies who are experiencing a lot of social upheaval. 
who are in need of some sort of scapegoat or someone to point at if you're not experiencing the most brightest of times, if you're having an economical decline, if you're having a demographical crisis, we see that those sodomy cases tend to be taken more serious. So the way in which societies deal with minorities, unwanted minorities, marginal groups or marginalized groups, I should say, says a lot about societies in general. And I think that's very important to continue to discover and to analyze, not just for the sake of our historical knowledge, but also to see those patterns and dynamics in our own society, because we're not putting people at the stake anymore. But if you look at how we tend to talk about marginalized groups or minorities online, for instance, it shows something on how these patterns work, which I also discuss elaborately with my students, because I think that's one of the real reasons why we're looking at these personal lives of people, not just for the sake of spectacle or to discover these amusing stories, which is one of those side effects. If I was still a PhD student and I was on an international conference and everyone was talking during coffee breaks about what are you researching, many people had the reaction, oh, that's a quite funny topic. And people can find funny whatever they want. I'm not the judge of that, but it's far more than that. It says something about how societies look at minorities and how these patterns continue to be present in our society, I think. So that's the real importance of not just my work, but this field of history, historical research. Thank you for your work in recovering these stories and helping us to know them in the 21st century. And I hope that we'll hear from you again because this has been a really wonderful scholarly piece of work that you've done and it's just fascinating to talk to you about it. I was honoured to be here and I'm looking forward to another encounter. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.